Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of What the Politics. Today, our guest is a cybersecurity expert, and the reason that we're having him on here is because the Department of Homeland Security recently issued a National Terrorism Advisory System Bulletin, and that's a bit unusual because it addresses really the um, heightened threat of violence from domestic terrorist organizations um, and extremists, and not really mentions foreign terrorist organizations or even terrorism throughout the world. And it's something that we are wanting to kind of analyze with the cybersecurity expert because I did a, a story with him earlier this month following the January 6th riots about the rise of extremist groups in the United States. So I'm going to go ahead and have our guest introduce himself. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Bryce Webster Jacobson. I'm the Director of Intelligence Operations with the Cyber Threat Intelligence Firm GroupSense based out of Washington, D.C. And before we get into our, our questions and the topic of our conversation today, we'd like to ask a personality question. Okay. And the personality question that we have for you today is, do you have any pets? I do. I have two cats. Oh, okay. you're a cat person, really? I am a cat person because they are easier to take care of than a dog. That is uh, very true. <laughs> prior, to the, prior to working from home, uh, now with working from home, it'd probably be easier to take care of a dog. But yeah, a cat person just out of uh, out of sheer convenience. Yeah. <laughs> what What are your cat's names? That's also a big teller. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, our cat, our cats are named Hot Rod and Eric Two. Oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so to go ahead and get start started off with this topic, you know, as someone who is in cybersecurity, cyber intelligence, you know, what are some issues, if any, that you see in our, you know, in this modern day and age when it comes to cybersecurity, when it's related to our government? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, you know, we talk frequently about the blurring of cybersecurity and security writ large um, that has occurred over the past, you know, 10 years, five years, even back to, you know, 20 years of young. Um, cybersecurity has been and has become instrumental to the understanding of security in general. Uh, and, and we often see as, as, uh, governments or larger organizations are prone to do. They're a little bit slower to uh, react to updating technology or advancements in technology. Um, so I I can't think of security without thinking of cybersecurity, and I can't think of cybersecurity without thinking about the real world impacts or the um, the impacts on physical security and other forms of security. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about, um, or do you have any opinions about? the state of security when it comes to the United States government in relation to other countries? Are we behind? Are we sort of on par with other countries? Do you think that there are other countries, other agencies that definitely have more of an advantage when it comes to um, the architecture of cyber intelligence in the United States government? Yeah, I think um, in terms of collection capabilities, I would not say, uh, I, I, w- I would definitely say that the the U.S. government, federal government, and many state and local government um, 
agencies. And it, it's a little bit more complicated in the U.S. because of uh, kind of the structure that we have and the importance of local government. Um, but on, on a federal level, the, the U.S. is pretty capable of the collection of cyber intelligence and cyber threat intelligence. Um, where we do see a little bit of, uh, or where in my personal opinion, I do see a little bit of lag is the ability to action that intelligence um, and, and the coordination of being able to share that cyber intelligence and, and, and exactly what do, what do we do with this, uh, with, with this intelligence that we have. Um, other countries, some other countries are, um, are a little bit better, uh, a little bit more advanced or a little bit, uh, have, have better systems in play for, or in place for coordination and sharing of, of cyber threat indicators. Do you think that um, sometimes federal agencies might, I don't want to say mitigate, that's not the word, but might present some sort of um, resistance when it comes to, not the federal agencies, excuse me, but when the federal agencies are trying to conduct um, like cyber operations and trying to conduct, conduct uh, gather intelligence, mm-hmm. do you think that um, government officials, the Senate, the House, that can sometimes interfere with the progress that these agencies are trying to um, have? Um, I, I, that's, a, that's a really good question. You know, I, I try to, I guess, stay away from individual political figures or individual political parties um, and, and their involvement. Um, but, but at the end of the day, you know, we, we do have a, um, a system of government that we're requires checks and balances or rightfully so and so the legislation uh, the legislative branch and the um the judicial branch and the executive branch all play an important role in the development of cyber policies right um and and there's important oversight functions from you know the house and the senate um, on cyber policies but um you know they those can get in the way i think you know any time that you have some sort of bureaucratic process um that is related to the development of policy or or actioning policy. Um, you know that that adds extra steps and times. Now there's also an important function of uh, of those um, those oversight or they're they're important outcomes of those oversight functions. Making sure that the policies are done in an equitable manner. Making sure that any sort of cyber policies are not infringing on civil liberties. Um, and that resources are appropriately shared. Mm-hmm. And and I know I want to ask a question regarding uh, something that we discussed earlier about extremist groups on the rise mm-hmm. in the United States. But Emily, did you have anything else that you wanted to add to? Sure, I was. You know, I was kind of curious about any examples that you had um, relating to cybersecurity. You know, issues that the U.S. might be behind in compared to other countries. If you have any, you know, specific examples that could help our audience really understand that. You know, I think we we did see a uh, by by all all reporting. Uh, you know, we we saw a lot of success and advancement in the protection of our election infrastructure, mm-hmm. um, the, the cyber election infrastructure with the most recent general election in 2020, uh, as opposed to um, you know some of the activity that we saw in 2016. Um, so, so I do think that that's one area that the U.S. has had um, success in. Um, in. In terms of uh, maybe an area that we're behind, I, I think, uh, you know, Victoria started to bring up the, um, the the study or the tracking of domestic violent extremism, and uh, particularly in online spaces. Uh, and I do think that's an area that the U.S. is behind. Um, we saw that prior to the events on January 6th, there was a lot of online chatter and, and 
in both open and closed spaces um, on on the web that was picked up and tracked by various agencies, state, local, and federal, um, but was not appropriately actioned or, uh, I guess, uh, well understood and uh, used to to format or, or to form you know physical security plans uh, to protect the capital. So um, I do think that that's one area. Um, you know, there there are other people that have uh, kind of uh, feelings about uh, the federal government's use of private technologies or or uh, you know the public private partnerships that we have to provide uh, security infrastructure to. Um, major government organizations uh, that, you know, has flaws in uh, in the, the software or the hardware, as was exposed with the solar wood tax. So, um, you know, I, I do think there are other areas as well that, you know, uh, do do receive attention within the cybersecurity community. Gotcha. And so one last question before, you know, I let Victoria kind of go in a different direction with this. Um, you know, in your personal or not personal, professional, excuse me, opinion, do you think that this past year's the 2020 presidential election was in fact a safe and secure election? That's still something that is a huge topic of debate, even still today, even after you know President Biden has been sworn in. So, in your professional opinion, what how how secure do you think that election really was? Yeah, in in my professional opinion, I haven't seen any any evidence that's been presented that. Uh, demonstrates massive coordinated or even um, significant uh, cyber uh, attacks or um, intrusions to uh, the the election infrastructure that we uh, that was used at, at the state, local, and federal uh, levels in the 2020 general election. So, kind of going more towards um, some of the domestic issues that we're seeing when it when it comes to what you do. Um, can you kind of go into a little bit about some of the concerns that you've seen on the rise um, happening in the United States when it comes to extremist groups and how they're communicating with each other and some of the things that that kind of contributed to what happened on January 6th? Yeah, so I think, you know, in, in both my or in my in my professional opinion and, and based on, you know, some of my academic background and um, in studying extremism, you know, the, the events of January 6th and really, um, uh, really are just kind of the latest in a series of uh, domestic extremist events that have been on the rise for, you know, a number of years. Um, you know, we, we've seen, uh, you know, uh, th- there was a shooting in Wal- at a Walmart in El Paso that was uh, racially motivated and had some connections to uh, domestic extremism. You saw, um, uh, at the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in in Pittsburgh a few years back, again an individual that was motivated by violent extremist rhetoric. So this is not a uh, a new phenomenon by any means, um, and and those cases that I mentioned uh, are have also or, or do have a cyber component, right? Uh, they uh, individuals posted manifestos or um, kind of expressions of their ideologies, and, and in some cases their plans on social media channels. Um, so, you know, this is this is something that's been building up for a number of years and I think is now reaching a critical mass where there's a lot of attention. What what are some of these ideologies that are that are um, being spread in uh, these extremist groups that that you're aware of? Yeah, so we we see, you know, ideologies across the uh, across all different spectrums, right? So we see racially motivated uh, extremists 
um, you know, white white supremacist extremists or uh, white nationalist extremists or, um, you know, we see uh, Islamic extremist groups. We see, uh, so I would kind of classify those as um, more of like the religious radical extremist groups um, where you see, you know, uh, anti-government extremists. You see um, really across all different political spectrums, across all different religious spectrums and across all different um, uh, racial spectrums. Really, what we've seen a lot of increase in is the the threat of what we would consider some of the far right, um, uh, the, the far right extremist groups. And do you think I, this is kind of like a two part question? But do you think that um, social media has made the activities of these extremist groups more easier to be planned? And then going from there, I do have another uh, follow up question regarding. Um, kind of your take on how social media groups, uh, not social media groups, excuse me, these extremist groups are are um, talking to each other. Now that some of the platforms are, the social media platforms are kind of deplatforming them and, and uh, banning them from their sites. Yeah, so so the first part of, of, of how social media has made it uh, easier for these groups or these ideologies to spread. I do think there there's been, you know, a, a large body of research that is focused in the past years, uh, the past few years, on um, on social media companies' role in the spread of uh, of extremist ideology. Um, there's, you know, the the way that either Facebook or YouTube, uh, the algorithms that drive content promotion on those platforms, uh, have been shown to put people into or to, to, to show people more and more extreme content as they dive into these rabbit holes. Um, so they're, they're the suggested videos, the suggested pages, the suggested content um, is often kind of one step above, right? And so it's, it's creating a more uh, natural or easy way for somebody to become radicalized in an ideology. So maybe they start with something very nefarious uh, or, or very, uh, you know, uh, not that, not what we would consider an extremist content, right? So they're, they're looking at videos that are, are related to general political content. And that slowly they, they start to receive um, suggestions for videos or groups that uh, are more and more extreme. Uh, so I, I think that's one way that social media has made it easier for these ideologies to spread. Well, on the other hand of that, you know, I would imagine that with the rise of social media giving these groups, you know, a platform kind of with a group think um, process, I would also imagine that it almost kind of makes it easier for you guys, cybersecurity people, to catch (laughs) these, you know, extremist groups because they feel like they have this platform that they, you know, don't have repercussions on what they say. So I would imagine it, does it make it easier for you guys to, you know, catch people or, or red flag someone with social media? Yeah, so I think um, it, I, a lot of uh, so there, there's really been kind of a, a huge shift in the, the social media landscape post January 6th, where we are now seeing a lot more active deplatforming. But you know, prior to January 6th, when you know in the in the preceding years that really led us to this point, um, again, this is this has been a slow burn over a number of years. Um, the, the social media platforms it. it did become easier for these groups to, to you know, uh, form private groups or uh, private channels on Facebook or on um, what would be considered more prevalent social media 
platforms um, and share content on YouTube. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was easy. I would say, you know, it's not necessarily easy, but it, it's out in the open. Uh, so security researchers in law enforcement um, could be tracking this and could, and could see it. And, and we saw those, those platforms used by domestic extremists and, and even uh, international extremists, um, right? So the, uh, the, the mosque shooting in, in Christchurch, New Zealand, in uh, March of uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I believe that was 20, 2019 um, or 2018, um, you know, that, that gentleman you know, live streamed the, <laughs> the attack on Facebook um, and, and shared the links to the Facebook live stream on, on, other, on other forums prior to to his actions right so this is uh this is not a new phenomenon uh what what we're what we're seeing now though is uh you know with some of the deplatforming has has allowed these groups to con continue to splinter off into more closed or alternative social media platforms that maybe don't have the same moderation policies uh content moderation policies that you would see in um or, or that you see on like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube uh, now that they've, they've been developing recently. Sure. And so could a low grade example of that, you know, be the fact that the FBI was kind of using social media as a platform to have people help them in finding the people, uh, you know, the extremists that broke into the Capitol. Um, is that kind of a similar situation, sort of a similar example? Yeah, it, it, it is a similar example in, insofar as that, you know, social media has become, uh, and social media platforms specifically have become massive information repositories. It's a, the amount of content that is posted on social media uh, that is that has open source intelligence value is, is it's just massive. Um, so, you know, you see, and, and also the fact that Social media platforms are intentionally designed to allow people to stay in communication with those that are not near them. It is uh, kind of the golden age of being able to communicate with, with family members that are on the other side of the world or friends that share a um, uh, that, that share a similar interest to you. That maybe it's not prevalent in your community, but you found somebody in South Korea on the other side of the planet that has the same interest as you, and you're allowed to connect. Right. So, it, it, social media platforms uh, do have have the ability to allow us to connect and reach, you know, hundreds of millions of people uh, if we have that reach. Uh, so it is interesting that the, the FBI has been using uh, particularly like Twitter and other social media platforms to, to disseminate their, uh, their wanted posters in connection to the events on January 6th, as well as a tool to collect tips on, um, on individuals who may have been present at the, at the riots on January 6th. So, um, you know, you, you can, if you read some of the affidavits of, uh, or charging documents with individuals that have been arrested uh, based on their activities uh, on January 6th, you'll see, you know, tips from Twitter <laughs> cited in, in the charging documents. You'll also see evidence from individuals' personal Facebook accounts or parlor accounts or other social media accounts that, um, you know, puts them at the location um, and in committing a crime that they've been charged with. Mm -hmm. And and I, I do want to talk about um, some of those social media platforms, um, Parler and mm -hmm. uh, being taken off. I think it was Amazon Web Services. And then, of course, um, some of these bigger uh, mainstream platforms taking banning um, a few of the users. 
Are you seeing that that's disrupting kind of these activities or is it creating, are they just going to keep doing activities that, that align with their extremist values and um, it doesn't really matter whether or not these platforms, what kind of actions these platforms take? Yeah. Is it so, disrupting their actions at all? Yeah, that's, and that's a very great question. It's, it's, a, it's a nuance. There's a lot of nuance to it. So we, again, uh, the social media platforms have a history of, of, um, of, of content moderation and, and banning users with other extremist ideologies. It would be more considered like the international terrorist ideologies, ISIS, Al-Shabaab, some of these um, these larger uh, Islamic terrorist groups that are uh, prevalent in parts of Africa or the Middle East. Um, they've been removed from Twitter. They've been, their groups have been removed from Facebook, Telegram. You know, so the social media platforms have a history of, of content moderation, and it, it works in the short term in, it, in that it can disrupt recruitment um, and dis- disrupt their spread, but that doesn't mean that these these groups and the ideologies go away. Uh, they, you know, often reorganize on different platforms. They uh, sometimes even attempt to reorganize on the same platform that they were kicked off of with, uh, like, ban evading accounts. Uh, so it works in the short term, um, but, you know, there's a, I hate to use, like, a colloquialism here, but where there's a will, there's a way. Um, the, the ideology is not going to be rooted out by, um, removing or putting up barriers to to organization. Um, it, it's a short term benefit, and there is some uh, there is some benefit to the the deplatforming that social media accounts can take. Um, but you know, if there are other social media platforms that don't have the same content moderation policies, uh, then you know that might be a destination for these extremist groups to or these uh, ideologies to fester. Mm-hmm. And um... This is something that's been in interest uh, of an interest to me since we've talked, because um, we did a story together about the um, uh, extremist groups on the rise, and a, a few other stations in North Carolina picked that up. Um, since we've done that story, have you seen anything um, that's kind of caught your attention about any groups over here in this uh, part of the country, in the East and North Carolina, that's kind of raised or caught your attention or, or um, raised your awareness about uh, activities? If that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And um, yeah, and I actually really enjoyed our, our conversation a couple of weeks back uh, uh, for that story. So I, I appreciate you um, following up with me again today. Um, you know, I haven't seen anything new or specific um, that has popped up, but, you know, I also haven't seen a, a, ma- a major change in any of the groups that um, that kind of caught my attention previously. Right? So um, some of these groups are still active on, on alternative social media platforms. Um, you know, they're still following the, the day's political stories as they have been for a number of years. Um, they're still, um, we, we have seen some of the, um, the further right groups, um, maybe like the Oath Keeper, probably types ideologies that are, are trying to actively infiltrate um, some of like the QAnon and more conspiracy theory um, social media profiles that, or, or um, organized uh, groups that maybe aren't as uh, extremist in their or violent in their content, but could be susceptible to the ideology. So we continue to see that um, kind of the overlap or the infiltration of some of the far right ideologies and some of the conspiracy theory. Um, uh, they're the conspiracy focused groups. 
Um, so my last question for you is, have you seen anything in your professional field that you've been keeping um, on track of or keeping on guard of um, in regards to extremist activity? Or, or what, what, what are you following right now? Yeah, I, I continue to follow pre- predominantly like the anti-government extremist groups. That's a, a, against an ideology that dates back decades and decades um, that, you know, always seems to kind of bubble up under the surface when there's a lot of rising tensions. That's one area that I, I continue to follow um, and that, that particularly concerns me because, um, you know, you see anti-government extremists no matter who's or which political party is in office. Um, so uh, they're, they're, that's a, an ideology that I, I'm really kind of concerned about, especially because of uh, some of the coordinated activity and attempts to bring in followers of the QAnon conspiracy theory into um, these more anti-government extremist networks. So that's one area that, that I've been following and, and continues to concern me. My last question for you is, um, what do you think in this day and age is the biggest threat to our country? Um, is it domestic antagonist, foreign antagonist? What is the biggest threat in your professional opinion to our country right now? Uh, right, right now, I would say domestic antagonist. Yeah, I, w- I would say, you know, there is uh, the, the federal, state, and local governments are lacking the resources and the commitment to countering violent extremism. And uh, this is a whole discipline of, of study that focuses on, you know, beyond just social media activity and deplatforming. How do you really change, uh, uh, change, change minds and, and, and rehabilitate, rehabilitate people who are violent extremists, right? And so how, how do you, um, what social network or what social systems do we have in place? What educational reforms do we have in place that are, uh, and tools do we have to help rehabilitate and um, bring people back from these, these violent extremist ideologies? Um, that's something that I'm really concerned about. Definitely. Well, that's all the questions we had for you. And we really, really appreciate your time. We don't want to take too much up of it because we know, you know, you're definitely a busy person. So um, thank you so much for joining us for this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Uh, you all giving me a call and it was great great chatting with you too all right everyone that's going to wrap up this episode of what the politics me and victoria release a new episode every tuesday night so be sure to stay with us every tuesday for those new episodes you can find them on wnct.com under the features tab on the wnct podcast network you can also find them on spotify and apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts all right guys thanks so much and we'll see you next week